Thanks for joining us for Redemption Church Online. A couple of weeks ago, we started a series in 1 Peter called Strangers on the Earth. And that uh, phrase is a reference to the idea that Christians aren't necessarily at home here on the earth, that we have a, a home that we're looking forward to, which is an eternity with Jesus, and how we're supposed to live as we live here as strangers on the earth. Strangers are a little bit different, and uh, we're called to live differently. And so that's what we're sort of unpacking as we go through 1 Peter. Last week, I did part one of a two-part sermon, uh, and part one was Salvation Defined. And we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, where Peter kind of lays out what salvation is. And a couple of the things that, that were I want to highlight from that sermon were this. Salvation is the experience of a new birth that leads to immeasurable change and benefits. It's the experience of a new birth. To, to be saved is to be born again. To be a Christian is to be born again. To be born into a new life, a life that exists because of and in Jesus. It's a life that comes with benefits in the here and now. We talked about a living hope. And it's a life that has even greater benefits in the future, which is referred to in 1 Peter as our inheritance, the inheritance that we share with Jesus. And then uh, I kind of went over some ways that strangers or Christians are identified. And I said that Christians are identified by three things. They love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rejoice in salvation. And so that was part one, salvation defined. What, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? How can you know if you are a Christian type stuff? And today we're going to go into the next couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, where we're going to talk about salvation foretold. All of this under what I call the stranger's orientation. So what is salvation? What does it mean to be a stranger? And now salvation foretold, where we're going to look at the beauty of how God was preparing the world for the revelation of Jesus Christ at the appropriate time and how all throughout human history, God was working his plan of redemption that from the very beginning, God had a plan in place to bring salvation to people whom he knew would rebel against him. So let's look at first Peter chapter one, verses 10 through 12 together. It says this concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. That's our passage for today. We'll uh, unpack that piece by piece. Uh, but so, first, a general thought. Salvation, this is the first thing on your handout if you're taking notes today. Salvation was prophesied in the Old Testament as the Holy Spirit spoke through many prophets. As I've already mentioned, God was planning this from the very beginning. And throughout Old Testament history, he's revealing his plan piece by piece. He's, he's giving foreshadowings and prophesying and, and hinting at what is to come. And it begins in the very beginning. I want to show us what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is just show us a couple of the places in the Old Testament where we see the coming Messiah, which is the Old Testament concept of, of the Christ or Jesus coming, that he was coming to be the Messiah. He was coming to save people. Uh, 
mostly they would have thought of that as he was coming to save the nation of Israel because God through uh, his selection of Abraham began a nation that became known as the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. And most of these promises were given directly to them. Although from the very beginning, even when God spoke to Abraham, he made it clear that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And so it's not as if God was intending only to deal with the nation of Israel, but that through the nation of Israel, salvation would come to, to the whole world and that all people, regardless of who they descended from or, or, or um, how they identified themselves ethnically, would be offered this gift of salvation. The first place we see this show up in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 3. You probably know Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we don't get very far. We get in chapter 3 where we see God already alluding to his plan of redemption. And this happens right after uh, his original plan for the earth, which was for Adam and Eve to live in the garden with him and to be fruitful and, and multiply and fill the earth, was ruined uh, by the sin that Adam and Eve committed against God. And so they sinned against God. They rebelled against him. They rejected um, the word that he had given them and the instruction that he had given them. And he's, he's handing out punishment, essentially, for uh, what they had done. And you need to know, you probably know, but you need to know a little bit about that situation. So Adam and Eve were in the garden and God was not present. And Satan came to them in the form of a serpent. And he came and he tempted them. And he caused them or gave them opportunity, at least, to fall into sin. And so those are the three characters. You have Adam, you have Eve, and you have the serpent. And so God is speaking to each of them about what the consequences of this would be. And in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Listen to verse 15. This is what many believe to be the first hint at the gospel, uh, which is to come. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That prophecy of he will strike, uh, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel is what we call the proto-evangelion, the first message of the gospel, the first hint that there would be salvation. Mel Gibson, when he made the Passion of the Christ, very beautifully and artistically uh, demonstrated what he thought this meant. And the scene, I believe it's when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's before he goes to the cross. It's before he's arrested and beaten and all that. And he's, he's praying to the Father. And, and you see uh, in movie, in, in theatric form, Satan is off kind of in the bushes. And he's watching and he's, he's delighting in what he sees. And Jesus is suffering. And then from Satan, the snake comes out of the bushes and makes its way over to Jesus. And when it gets close to Jesus, he stands up and he, uh, in one of the most powerful scenes in this movie, just slams his heel down on the serpent's head. Obviously, Mel Gibson is, is expressing what is said here in 315, he will strike your head. So that's where it begins. I believe that God is beginning to, to reveal that he has a plan for redemption from the very beginning. From the moment Adam and Eve fell, God is talking about redemption. And that's the story of the Old Testament. 
all throughout the Old Testament. It's about God redeeming his people. It's about people who have fallen away, people who have strayed from him, who have not done as he has commanded, yet God, out of his mercy and his love, is always acting to, in, to carry out his plan of redemption, but to bring people back to himself. And we go a little bit further in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 22. This is uh, God in dealing with Abraham. We see um, what can be an uncomfortable, but, but yet a beautiful depiction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God has called Abraham and he's promised him that he'll have many descendants. The problem is, is that uh, Abraham is not having many descendants. He's uh, desperately pursuing having a son, but he doesn't have a son. And so um, he eventually has a son by one of his servant girls. And uh, it's not until Adam is very old in age that God reveals, or, or that God carries out his promise of, of descendants through Abraham. In fact, when Abraham's first son is born to his wife, Sarah, Abraham is a hundred years old. And so, so Isaac, that son is born miraculously. He's born well past the, the years of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, being able to legitimately conceive. In fact, his wife, Sarah, when she hears this promise from God that she's going to have a son, she laughs she literally laughs out loud and she's, she's sort of rebuked by the Lord for doing so. She laughs because it's impossible. It's not something that can no longer happen. Men and women get to an age where they can no longer reproduce. And that's where Abraham and Sarah are at. But through miraculous intervention by God, she conceives and she gives birth to the boy Isaac. Abraham loves Isaac. This is his son. This is his son that he's waited for, that he's prayed for, that he was promised. It's the one through which his, his, God's promise to him is going to be fulfilled, that he'll multiply, that have many descendants, and that through him, the earth will be blessed. But God asked Abraham to do something very difficult. And it's something that I believe is clearly a lesson for us. It's something that in it, from our perspective, we're supposed to see the gospel. It says in Genesis 22, Verse one, and after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So offer him as a sacrifice. Take your son and sacrifice him. Again, I warn you, this is an uncomfortable story. It's not something, it's something that raises a lot of questions, no doubt. But, but wait till you hear how the story ends. And so Abraham sets out with Isaac and they go and in obedience. He's, he knows that he's heard from God. He's heard this voice before. It's the voice that called him in the, in the, in, um, in the very beginning of this uh, adventure with God when he called him out of the land that he was living into the promised land. So he knows God's voice and God has spoken clearly. He takes a son and they go and they're on their way to offer this sacrifice. Verse seven says, then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, son. Isaac said, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. So a bit of an awkward exchange between Abraham and his son. He knows what God has called him to do. Obviously, he's not revealed that to Isaac. And Isaac's starting to think, well, hey, he knows how offerings work. If we're going to offer a sacrifice, where's the sacrifice? We've got the wood. 
We're on our way, but we've not brought with us anything to sacrifice. Well, they actually get to the point where they set up for the sacrifice. And Abraham's ready to offer up Isaac. And no doubt he's grieved and struggling, but he has faith. He has faith because he knows that God has miraculously intervened before in his life. The very existence of Isaac is evidence that God miraculously intervenes. And so he has this confidence. It says in verse 11, as Abraham is preparing to offer this sacrifice, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. So Abraham's actually ready to do it. He, I didn't read the part, but he actually tied Isaac up. I mean, Isaac, I don't, I, I don't know if they had counseling in the land of Israel then, but this dude needed counseling after this. I'm sure. His dad tied him up and was ready to sacrifice him. But Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, that God would bring him back from the dead. He believed in a miraculous God. That was his confidence, his hope, his faith was that God could do the miraculous. But my point in sharing this story is not Abraham's faith. It's that God, from the very beginning, is preparing us for Jesus to come. Because one day, God himself would offer up his only son, the son that whom he loved, and he would not spare him. He would allow him to be a sacrifice on our behalf. And that he would allow him to go and be the propitiation for our sins or the payment for the sins that you and I have committed. So we see Adam in, in, in Adam's lifetime, God hinting at this plan of redemption. We see in Abraham's lifetime, a dramatic revelation of how God plans to save the world. Under Moses, another one of uh, the more prominent names in the Old Testament, people are, are saved through the Passover lamb. This is this incredible story. Uh, Abraham would live, Isaac would live, and they would have many, many descendants, and they would become a large nation. But that large nation eventually, because of famine, ends up as slaves in the land of Egypt. And so God is preparing to deliver his people from the land of Egypt. And he raises up this guy named Moses. And you're probably familiar with some of the story. But through a series of, of 10 different plagues, God brings his people out of Egypt. And the last and final plague that eventually convinces the Egyptians to let all of these slaves go, which had to have been economically devastating for them. But what convinced them in the end was the 10th and final plague where God came through and he struck down the firstborn in every Egyptian household. But before he did that, he gave these instructions to the, Jew, to the Israelites that they were to offer a Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was to be a pure, unblemished lamb. And there was very specific instructions about how they were to sacrifice that lamb. But what they were to do after they sacrificed that lamb was they were to take blood from that lamb and they were to paint it on the doorposts of their home. So that when the angel came through to strike down the firstborn, every home that had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over and they would be saved. 
And that's exactly what happened. And it's, that is the, the dramatic way in which God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So for the next 1,500 years, from that time until Jesus, the Israelites remembered that action by holding what they called the Passover feast. And it was a feast during which they went through kind of a cool process of remembering what God had done. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist actually identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He came to be the sacrifice. He came to be that sacrifice that, that uh, began when Abraham took Isaac and God said, no, no, not this one. It's going to be another son that is sacrificed for the sins of the world. He came to be the Passover lamb. Uh, Paul actually refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, the one who saves us from death through his blood. He came to be that for us. And it was actually at the Passover feast that Jesus was, was arrested, beaten, and crucified. There's no doubt that God put all of these things in place so that when Jesus came and lived these things out, that we would be able to look back and see God has been planning this all along. He was planting those seeds of his plan of redemption. He said that he, he told uh, the serpent in the garden and with Eve in, his, in, in presence of hearing this, that the serpent would strike his heel, meaning her offspring, Jesus, but that he would crush his head. And it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that, that he crushed the head of Satan. He dealt the final blow, meaning Satan has nothing left to, against those who Jesus has saved. So we see this throughout the Old Testament. David in his Psalms constantly, and, and some of the other writers of the Psalms, constantly alluding to this coming Messiah and pro actually prophesied many of the things that would happen to him. Psalm 22 is an example of this. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesies about the suffering servant, which was to come. This was 700 years before Jesus was come. And he prophesied down to these intricate details of how Jesus would suffer and go to the cross for us. And then in, in Acts chapter two, this is after Jesus's resurrection and ascension, Peter stands up and he gives the first gospel message recorded in the New Testament. And in that message, he talking to a Jewish audience who valued the Old Testament as their Bible, that was their Bible, their scriptures, points them back to the Old Testament and says, Jesus is the one that was coming. Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied about. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament, they didn't call it the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that the scriptures said would come to save us. And he showed them from the scriptures how God had been preparing and God had been, been prepping the scene for Jesus to come and to be our savior. This is salvation foretold. I love the story of Jesus approaching some of the disciples after his resurrection. It says that there were two men who were walking uh, from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus and Jesus came up to them. Now, after Jesus's resurrection, he didn't stay with the disciples. He would occasionally appear to them over a period of about 40 days. And then before he ascended into heaven, not to be seen on the earth again, but he would appear to them from time to time. And one of those instances, 
is the road to Emmaus. And these two guys are walking along and they're going to go and they're going to meet up with some of the other disciples and Jesus appears to them, but he doesn't, the Bible says that they were prevented from recognizing him. So I don't know exactly what that means, but he starts walking with them and they don't know that it's Jesus. And he says, guys, what's going on? And they tell him their version of what's going on. And their version of what's going on shows Jesus that they didn't totally understand what had happened and what Jesus came to do. And so he responds to them. He says, how foolish you are. This is Luke 24. It won't be on the screen, but Luke 24, 25 through 27. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He points them back to the Old Testament hinting that they should understand that what he has done was in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Wasn't it necessary, he said, for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now Moses is the first biblical writer. He's not the first person in the Bible, but he's the one that records and writes down for us everything that happened before him. He's the writer of the first five books. So then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. What a conversation that had to have been as Jesus unpacks for them. Here, here's another way that we were playing. And, and remember, remember when we did this and the old, uh, and, you know, through the Israelites, remember when we did this in Egypt and remember when David said this, that was about me. That was pointing to me. That was, that was all in reference to what you just witnessed that I was coming to be the Messiah, to be the savior. And that what just happened is in fulfillment of all of that. What an amazing conversation. And it all points to the fact that God was planning this from the very beginning. A couple more points. The next thing on the handout is this. These prophets, back to our first Peter text, these prophets had a veiled view of the salvation to come and longed to see it come to pass. Okay, so all of that was just unpacking. I wanted to give some examples of what this looked like in the Old Testament. Instead of just pointing you to it, I wanted to give some examples. But now let's talk about this. These prophets had a veiled view of the salvation to come and longed to see it come to pass. Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So God was speaking through various men in Old Te- and, and women in the Old Testament. And he's, he's foretelling of this salvation to come, but they didn't have all the pieces they didn't even understand at times the peace that they were given. Nonetheless, they were convinced that the Spirit of God was prophesying and working through them to reveal this, but to them it was veiled. They didn't see the whole picture, but they longed to. They wanted to. I think of some examples in the Old Testament uh, of, of men who longed to see the revelation of the Christ. They wanted to see the glory of God revealed on the earth. And two of them show up, uh, two of these Old Testament characters actually show up in Jesus's life and ministry on earth. There's this really cool event in the Gospels called the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes three of his disciples and he takes them up on this mountain. And the Bible says he was transfigured. That means he was changed. His appearance was changed. He was white and shining like the sun. He was white like light. 
And what this was, it was, it was the glory of God being revealed to them. And they were seeing with their own eyes the glory of God on the earth. They were seeing with their own eyes what so many in the times before this longed to see and what they wanted to see, but they were veiled from seeing. And then these two guys show up with them. Two, two men from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And what I love about that, what I think is so incredible about that, is that Moses lived, Moses lived his whole life serving God. He did... Um, you know, he's the one that brings the Israelites out of Egypt. He takes them through 40 years. He spends in the desert wandering with these people, instructing them and, and tolerating some, a lot of um, difficult things from them. Uh, but yet he faithfully leads the people and they're, the, they come to the place where it's now time after 40 years in the desert. They're going to go into the promised land. That was the goal, right? When they left Egypt 40 years earlier, the goal was to get to the promised land, the land of Israel, and to be where they were supposed to be as the people of God. And just before they go into the land, God lets Moses know he's not going in. He's not going to get to see the glory of God in the promised land. He's not going to see what his heart longs to see. And, and God reveals to him and he points back to some, there were some reasons why he did this. And he points back to some things that Moses did. Um, and he has to look from a distance and see. And that's the kind of thing that's being referred to here in First Peter. They wanted to see, they, they investigated these things. They, they wanted to look and to see this fulfillment of everything that God was promising through them. The other one being Elijah. Elijah is one of the most interesting stories of all the prophets in the Old Testament. Because Elijah had a heart for the glory of God. He wanted, he lived in Israel in a time after they were in the promised land, but in a time when the people were very disobedient to God. The glory of God was not bright in Israel at the time. And Elijah longed to see the people come back to the Lord. They had followed after other gods, false gods, and they were serving these false gods. He wanted to see the glory of God revealed in Israel. And there was this really crazy event where he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, some of these false gods that they were serving. And God reveals himself in this incredible way, but the outcome of that is not quite what Elijah expects. The people don't necessarily return to God the way he would expect them to. And Elijah leaves the earth in dissatisfaction, having not seen the glory of God revealed on the earth. And here's two men that faithfully served God, but didn't get to see the glory of God on earth. And when it comes time for Jesus to be transfigured and for his glory to be revealed, God says here, Moses and Elijah, I want you to see something. And they get to see it. They finally get to see it. Um, and there's reasons for why those two men were chosen. In fact, we'll probably talk about that a little bit further in, as we get into this letter of First Peter. But for now, I just wanted to point to that reality that there were these people who, who were part of God's plan and part of this revelation, but didn't get to see the whole picture. And then, in fact, the next point is this. What they longed to see more clearly has now been made clear for us to see. What they long to see more clearly has now been made clear for us to see. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. What they long to see, we get to see. 
What, what so many of, of those who came before Jesus died in anticipation of and never got to see with their eyes. We live in this other part of history where our perspective looking back on what they longed for, what they waited for and anticipated, what they lived in faith of but did not see, we see. We have heard the gospel. We have seen it change the world. We have the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're living in the days that so many people before us long to be a part of. We are in these times. The gospel has been revealed. We have seen what Jesus, we have seen what God was talking about in Genesis 3.15 when he was speaking to the serpent. We have seen the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We have, we have seen the glory of God in the way that Moses and Elijah and so many others long to see it. We've seen God do what the psalmists longed for God to do. He has brought justification to all who would believe in him through sending his son, Jesus. We have seen it. We have that perspective and we ought to rejoice. My conclusion is this. God has been working all throughout human history to send the savior, Jesus Christ, to bring us back to himself. That's what I wanted to get us to today. I just wanted to rejoice in the fact and, 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 and understand that God has been working all throughout human history to send his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And we are witnesses of this. We live in the days when this has been revealed, when this has been made clear. Galatians 4 says this in verses 4 through 7, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that what we so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then God has made you an heir we spoke last week about the inheritance that we have that we are we are we're co-heirs with Jesus because he has adopted us into the family. He, he gives us the right to call God by his fatherly name, Abba Father, the name that Jesus uses to refer to God the Father, Abba Father. The only other time that phrase is in the Bible. Uh, one is another time in Romans when Paul was saying something very similar to this. But more importantly is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's speaking to his father in one of the most intimate moments of his life on earth and he calls him Abba Father. And God says, because I've sent my son and because I've adopted you through his act of justification on your behalf on the cross, you are now adopted into my family and you call me by the same name. You have an inheritance. You're not a slave. You're a son or a daughter. We're brought into his family. God's been doing, this is what he's been doing throughout all human history. He was setting the stage for Jesus to come and to reveal the glory of God so that people could look to him and be saved and brought into his family. Rejoice in this. As we live out our lives as strangers on earth, put that in perspective. Our few years here on earth are part of God's eternal plan to bring salvation, something that he began in the very beginning, something that goes back to the time of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell 
something that was something that was began to to manifest itself when I uh, when uh, Abraham takes Isaac up on that mountain. Something that Moses was preparing people to understand when he instructed the Israelites to take that pat, the blood of that Passover lamb and paint it over the doorpost. Something that David spoke of as he wrote many of the Psalms. Something that the prophets the prophets prophesied about in Isaiah when he declared the suffering that the Savior would have to go through for us. God has revealed it all in Jesus Christ. All those promises fulfilled. All of those have met their fulfillment in Jesus. And we get to be the recipients of that. And we get to celebrate. And we get to, So as we live as strangers on earth, put it in that perspective. I'm part of what God was doing from the very beginning. So what does that look like? How does he want me to live We've, def we've defined salvation. We've talked about how salvation has been foretold. And now for the rest of the letter, we get to talk about what does it mean to be strangers on the earth? Then how do we live? If we're part of this, this eternal divine plan that God has put into play, then how are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? I'm glad you asked because that's what the rest of 1 Peter is about. As we live as strangers on earth, we're going we're gonna to do our very best and seek his help in living the way that he wants us to live. And if you haven't begun that journey yet because you haven't trusted in Jesus to be your Savior, I hope you'll do that today. I hope you'll join us and that you'll join us in, in living out our lives here on earth in an understanding of what God has done in the past and in an expectation of what he's going to do in the future so that we'll see what he wants to do right here and right now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this incredible gift of salvation. Thank you for the immeasurable benefits that we have as recipients of your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for obediently coming to the earth to fulfill the plan of redemption that was, that was there in the very beginning. Thank you for being willing to suffer and die so that others didn't have to. Thank you for taking our place on the cross. Now may we learn to live as strangers on this earth, not counting this as our home, but as so many others have, longing, longing for the home that is to come, our eternity with you. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.